Good morning, church. It's good to see you. If we haven't met before, my name's Scott, and I want to say thanks for being here and worshiping with us today. I don't know about you, but I love hearing stories about people's lives. I love asking people their stories about their life and then just listening to them share. I love uh, documentaries on historical figures. My favorite books to read are biographies. I just love reading biographies. As a kid growing up, it was the only books that my parents could get me to read. So as a teenager, those were the books that I started collecting, and I've continued to collect biographies um, uh, that, I've, that I've enjoyed. And really, particularly the biographies that I love are stories about men and women who have great faith, because uh, I think there's just so much to be learned and gained from seeing a life that's yielded to God and how God can use it, a life for His purposes. And so if you were here earlier this year, you know that we studied the life of Ruth. We looked at Ruth, and we learned from her and her story. And today we're beginning a new study, and we're going to look at the life of Moses. Moses, uh, really, uh, one of the most, uh, you know, the greatest figures in the, in, in the Bible, but also probably one of, the, one of the most prominent figures in all of human history. And there's lots that can be said about Moses, and we'll look over the course of this time as we study his life, we'll look at some of those things um, that he did. Lots of things can be said about him. But interestingly, when you look at the Bible and you look at how he is described, what you'll commonly find him described is as the servant of God or the, or the, the servant of the Lord. In fact, let me just show you. A, just, I just pulled out a couple of references. There's numbers, numbers of them. But let me just point out a couple of references where it talks about Moses being a servant of God. So let me show you a couple of them. This one's found in Hebrews in the New Testament. Moses was, a, was faithful as a servant in all God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. Then in Revelation, when he's talked about it says this, they held harps given them by God and sang the song of God's servant Moses and the Lamb of God. So he's, he's referred to as a servant of God. And then as part of his title in the Old Testament, over and over, you'll see this. Um, this is just one verse that's talking about Moses. It says this, a proclamation was then issued to Judah and Jerusalem, and they should bring to the Lord the tax that Moses, the servant of God, had required of Israel in the wilderness. So he's again referred to as the servant of God. Other places in Joshua it says this, after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses is uh, Moses' aid. Moses, my servant, is dead. So you hear it over and over and over again. You've heard of Moses perhaps at some point in your life and some of the great things that he's done and the different things that he was a part of. But over and over in Scripture, he's, it's partnered with this sense that he's a servant. He's the servant of the Lord, that he's a servant of God. And quite honestly, most of us would be glad to have that as a tagline along with our name, wouldn't we? Wouldn't it be great if, if on our tombstone it had our name and underneath it the servant of God? And it was true. Wouldn't that be great? So what a great tagline to have. And so when we study the life of Moses, what we want to do is we're going to look at a lot of the different things that um, he did and God did through him and all of that. But we also want to stop and really see how did God shape Moses to be his servant? Because I don't know if you know this, but God is in the business of shaping people. And he's in the business of shaping you. And God wants to shape you to be his servant. Now, I realize this, that not everyone here, even you know, is it a point where you recognize or believe that God is there? 
Because I know that every single time we gather together, there's, there's, there's people all across the board spiritually. There's, the whole spiritual spectrum is, is represented. So if you're here and you're saying, I'm not even sure that God's there, the starting point for you is this. Here's the assignment. The simple assignment for you is this, to recognize God's hand at work. To just simply recognize that there's a God and his hand is at work. In fact, the scripture says this. God says this, if you seek me, you'll find me if you seek me with all your heart. That if you want to seek and find God, guess what? He's a God who wants to be found. And he promises, you seek me, you'll find me. So that's the starting point. Just maybe simply recognizing that there's a God who has a hand in, in, in this world, but also in your life. Now, some of you, though, have placed your faith in, in the Lord. You know who he is, and you recognize what he's done for you through the, the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's not just for you recognizing the hand of God, but it's responding to the hand of God in your life. So it's recognition, God, you exist. Your hand is there shaping. Now I need to be responsive to you. And so for others of you, it's just how can we be responsive to him? And this is where the life of Moses is so helpful because we see the hand of God shaping him and we see Moses being responsive to God in the process as he's shaping him. And this is why, why, again, his life is so important for us to study because the book of Exodus could be a very short book, by the way. I don't know if you realize it. It could be summarized this way. God said to Moses, go to Pharaoh. Tell him to let my people go. Moses did what God said. Pharaoh said, okay. The end, right? It could be a very, there's a lot that's missing there, of course, right? But it could be a very compressed book of the Bible. But it's not that. In fact, there's all of these details and there's all of this, this coloring that goes in place. And the, one of the reasons is, one of the questions is why? And one of the reasons for it is so that you, can, you and I can see how God shapes his servant. So we get to, over the course of our time, study Moses. Look at the book of Exodus and see how it is that God shapes Moses to be his servant and the impact that that has. And so that's what we get to do, and that's what we get to pay attention to today. Now, when you look at a a person's life, there's lots of ways that you can want to look at it. You can look at the, you know, the times in which they live, the problems that they face, the opportunities that they took, the, the great works that they accomplish. But in the process of all that, you can miss some things that are very obvious, like what home did they grow up in? And so today, what we're going to focus in on is just the home that, that Moses was raised in, his early life, his family. Because there's lots that can be said about Moses, but what I want you to see today is that Moses had a mom and dad who had amazing faith, and that's an important thing for us to start with together. So we're going to jump in at Exodus chapter 2, Exodus chapter 2. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn to Exodus chapter 2. This is where we get to hear and see the background of Moses and his, his family and the faith of, great, amazing faith of his parents. Um, if you don't have your Bible, hopefully you receive the handout. The passage is printed for you. Once you find it, I'd like you to please stand, um, and we're going to read this passage together. Exodus chapter 2, uh, beginning of verse 1 through verse 10, says this. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. 
But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and and coated it with tar and pitch. And she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He he was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. Okay, go ahead and have a seat, if you will, please. We'll take a look at it together. Now, um, in order to understand this passage as we jump into it and to early, Moses' early childhood, um, it's important for us to just step back for a moment and understand the background. And in order to understand the background, really, we have to go back into the book of Genesis. Uh, the book of Genesis is about four great events and four great generations. The great generations being Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And the first great generation is Abraham. And it's to Abraham that God came to him and said, um, I've got a plan for you. And I'm gonna, the plan being, I'm going to take you to a promised land, the uh, land of promise. So that was the, that was the plan uh, of God for Abraham. But it wasn't just a plan, it was a promise that he would become a great nation, that um, there, there would be more than the, than, the, than the sand of the seashores, more people in the nation than the sand of the seashores. And so that was the great um, promise. But then there was a great purpose, ultimately, from Abraham's seed, that he would be a blessing to the nations. That is, the Messiah was to come from Abraham's lineage. So there's the, the, the Savior of the world. So there's this great plan, this great promise for a great purpose, and all of that is good. Except that, by the end of Genesis, none of those things have been realized. By the end of Genesis, you go from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Joseph. Um, they're not in the promised land. Where are they? They're in Egypt. So they're not in the promised land that God had, 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 had said that they would be. And they're, there's not, um, they're not this numerous, uh, vast you know, nation. There's 70 people, around 70 people that time. So they're not in the promised land. They're in Egypt. They're not this big, giant nation. And the deliverer hasn't come yet. Certainly, Joseph is a deliverer of the people, but not the deliverer of the whole world. And so, none of those things have been fulfilled, and this is where the book of Genesis ends at this point. Now, at the same time, I will say this, Joseph knows that God's faithful. And Joseph, at the end of his life, says, hey, when you make it to the promised land, because his confident hope and expectation is that God's going to fulfill his promise, he says, when, I, when you go to the promised land, take my bones with you. So he knows that God's going to fulfill his promise. It just hasn't been yet. And so that's where the chapter ends, <laughs> the, uh, the book ends in Genesis. The question then is, well, how do the people go from Egypt back to the promised land? And that's the process that we see in the course of the book of Exodus. 
And that's, and that's, that's what, what takes place there. And the question is, well, where, where, is, where do things shift? How do they go from, from Egypt uh, to the promised land? And in Exodus chapter 1, things begin to shift because it says in Exodus chapter 1 that a new Pharaoh comes on the scene who does not know Joseph. So a new Pharaoh comes on the scene. That is, Joseph has passed away. The generations continue. There's a new Pharaoh who doesn't remember Joseph. And it's interesting. We know a lot about Egyptian history, by the way, and we know a lot about the different dynasties of, of pharaohs and kings. And there was in this, this interesting interruption in this long string of pharaohs and dynasties in Egypt's history where there was this outside um, you know, uh, king, you know, kings that came in, and this new dynasty. They were not Egyptians. They were a Semitic people that came in. They were invaders, and they swept over Egypt and they took control. And that's the Hyksos dynasty. And I know that's no, that's not a, a, a barbecue sauce. Uh, the Hyksos, Hyksos dynasty. That's what they were called. And they came in and they swept over Egypt and they took control. And they, after, um, and they were, again, they were an, an outside group, an invading um, um, people. They were Semitic people, just like the Hebrews were Semitic people. Um, and, but eventually, they lost power, and it came back into the power of Egyptians. And that begins the 18th dynasty um, with Pharaoh Amosa. And a Pharaoh Amosa, the first, he has a memory. He remembers, hey, listen, um, we don't want to be overtaken by outsiders again, by invaders. And so he says, I, he looked at the Hebrew people, the Israelites who were living in Israel, and he saw them as a threat because he's like, never again are we going to be overthrown. So what does he do to the Israelite people? He puts them under the yoke of slavery. He says, we're going to make them our slaves and we're going to oppress them. But again, not only does he oppress them, he's concerned that if these young, this, 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 uh, the Israelites continue to populate and grow, that these young boys will grow up to young men who will become soldiers and warriors, and they'll overtake the Egyptians. So again, he sees them as a threat. He, see, he plays the race card. They're Semitic people. They're not us. And so he oppresses them with slavery, but then he also makes this edict. He says, all the baby boys must die. So not only is he under the uh, uh, yoke of oppression and slavery, he begins infanticide. So he says, hey, before these baby boys can grow up to be warriors, they need to be killed. And you may remember the story. He goes to the midwives, the Hebrew midwives, and he says to them, you know, if the, if the Hebrews have a, a girl, they can, they can, the girl can live. But if the Hebrews have a baby boy, you need to kill the baby boy. The Hebrew midwives um, don't do that. They let the boys live, and they go to Pharaoh, and when Pharaoh asked them, why, why, are the, why are the boys still living? They said, well, you know, Pharaoh, the, the Hebrew women, they're so healthy, you know, they just have their babies, they, they just, you know, come right out before we can get there. So that was kind of their, their statement. God honors their, their, their desire to save these, these children's lives, and, but at that point, Pharaoh says, okay, new strategy, and he says, here's, what, here's the deal. Any, any Hebrew family that has a baby boy, you need to throw the boy into the Nile River. Now, the Egyptians worshiped the Nile as a deity. And so his thought was, hey, we throw, the babies, throw all those babies into the Nile and uh, the crocs who live in the, the Nile um, will do the will of our God and they'll take care of all these babies. This is, by the way, the climate 
the culture, the time in which Moses is born. Talk about a scary, scary time. To live or to, to, to be born, let alone find out that you're pregnant. And that's what we do, or find out here in Acts, uh, sorry, Exodus chapter 2, that there's a couple that become pregnant. And it's one thing to have a government mandate, a government edict that's bad, but it doesn't touch your life. But at the moment that it touches your life, becomes very, very real. And for them, the moment they found out they were pregnant, it touched their life in a very personal way. Now we get to see how is it that they respond with amazing faith. Looking at Exodus 2, verses 1 and 2, it says this, is the summary. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. So here we have kind of a summary, and the summary is not so much about the family, it's about what God is doing, but we do know later on that um, Moses' uh, dad's name is Amram, his, his, uh, his mom's name is Jochebed, and he has a sister named Miriam and a brother named Aaron. We find this out later, and Aaron is three years um, older than uh, Moses. This is how we also know that there's probably a, a three-year gap between the edict and when Moses was born. Um, so, there's, so he has this family, but all of a sudden now, mom and dad find out, hey, we're, we're pregnant. And can you imagine at that time the, the stress that that, that couple was under? I mean, it's stressful enough, right, when you're going to have a baby, wondering, is the baby going to be healthy? Is the baby going to be okay? How's the pregnancy going to go? But on top of that, to say, and if it's a girl, she lives. If it's a boy, he dies. Can you imagine that kind of pressure, that kind of strain for a mom, for a family? That's the strain that they're under, and that's what they are, that's what they are feeling. Now, it says in this verse, it says this, after she gave birth to a son, um, when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. The interesting thing is when she says, saw that he was a fine child, some translations say when he was a beautiful child. And um, this is an interesting thing, the fine child, beautiful child, what does this mean? When she sees her baby, um, she sees him as a fine child. And of course, every parent when they see their child, it's a beautiful baby, right? I mean, you might look at the baby and say, yeah, it's a baby, right? You're not going to say it's a beautiful baby because you're not so sure. But for every parent that has the baby, they're like, this is the most beautiful baby in the world, right? So is that what's going on here? Every grandparent, of course, their, their grandchild is the most brilliant baby ever, right? So you, you, this is, we have a, a little bit of a bias there, but it's real and it's true. We see a baby, and it's your baby, and it's a beautiful baby. It's a fine baby. And so the question is, is that, what, what is it that, why is this stated here? And I'll just, I'll, I'll help you understand it, because the, the Hebrew here for the word fine is actually the word good. It means good. And so what does it mean that she sees the baby and it's good? And in order to understand what, what, what's behind that is to help, and what this means is to go back to where is that word used um, before? We have in, in script, this uh, Bible study this, this the kind of law of, of the principle of first reference. That is, where is this word first referenced and how is it used? And this word, by the way, is first used all the way back in Genesis chapter 1. When God created his, yes, when he, God created, he said, he said it was good. And he said it was good. And he said it was good. And he said it was very good. When God saw his work, it was very good. Here, 
this couple, they see this baby. And they're saying, this is the work of God. That's what they're saying. And it's good. Do you think this passage may have something to do with, something to say in the whole debate about, you know, pro-life and uh, the abortion issue? Because in Scripture, we need to be informed by Scripture, by the way, not by popular discussion. We need to go back to Scripture. And what does Scripture have to say about children? And Scripture tells us that, that children are a blessing of God, Psalm 127. That, that, that children are formed in the womb. This is, this is how Scripture teaches God's view. And this couple, they see that this baby was born, and they say, man, he's beautiful, but more than that, they see this is the work of God. And are we to throw this baby to the crocs? No. So they, they, they recognize, no, no, we can't do that. And so they, they say, well, what should we do? And they make a decision to hide the baby. And this is a really interesting thing because um, the government is saying, you've got to kill your baby. And they say, well, no, we don't, we don't want to kill our baby. And this brings up a whole other discussion of, well, what do we do with the uh, a government that's saying one thing and how do, how do, we, how do we respond to that? And I'll just kind of broadly say that in Scripture, when it talks about um, dealing with authority, the, the broad you know, uh, teaching of Scripture is that we yield to authority. It talks about it in, in 1 Peter chapter 2, that we yield to authority. And in 1 Peter chapter 3, it talks about even when we suffer as we yield to authority, that we can bring glory to God. But there are certain circumstances when there's illegitimate authority that we resist it, and we see that in Acts chapter 5. So the question is, which is it? The answer, we need to seek God, God's wisdom in these moments. See, the Bible isn't a cookbook where we just say, well, this ingredient, this ingredient, this is what we come up with. The point of the Bible is to bring us close into a relationship with God so that as a, in a re- close relationship with God in these moments of difficulty and challenge and moments of hard decisions that we say, God, we need your wisdom. We need to be responsive to you in this moment, in this circumstance because sometimes it's just not clear. Sometimes it's difficult. Sometimes it's challenging. And here's a, a couple that says, you know what, God? We, we, we want to resist, and we're going to hide this baby. And it says that they hid the baby for three months. How come three months? Well, any parent will tell you this. We'll know this, right? That when you first have a baby, they are just an eat, sleep, poop, pee machine, Right? That's what they do on repeat. <laughs> it's just eat, sleep, poop, pee. Eat, sleep, poop. That's what they do. But after about three months, all of a sudden, there's like a person that emerges from this little machine. And that little person wants to interact with the world. And no longer can you hide a person who's saying, hello, here, world, here I am. And I want to interact with you. And I want to go. So at some point, they recognize, hey, this was God's plan. Hide the baby. But then they had to shift plans, didn't they? And you may say, well, what are, they, are they still, you know, do they miss God's will? No. See, sometimes people say, well, God's will, I got to do one direction and I got to just stay in it forever. No, no, no. They just had to stay in close contact with God to say, you know what? The world is shifting underneath us. Circumstances are changing. God, what do we do now? And so they needed to come up with a new plan. And that's what they do. They come up with a new plan. And we see that in verse 3. It says this, but when she could hide him no longer, 
She got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds among the bank of the Nile. So she can't hide him any longer, so she comes up with a plan. She makes this basket. This word basket is also the same word that's used for the ark. So it's a little salvation boat is what it is. And so she makes this little salvation boat. She puts Moses in it and floats him out of the Nile. And you're thinking to yourself, what are you thinking? Why putting him out in the Nile? Is this, this, this sounds, um, sounds really risky. And um, I'll just say this. She's not a stupid mom, okay? She's a mom that's thinking things through. She's a mom that's trying to be responsive to God and do the very best that she can. She comes up with a plan, and it's a strategic plan. And um, that's what we see. We're tipped off to it in verse 4. It says this. Um, so she puts the baby out in the Nile. Then verse 4. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. So there is a plan that's being in place here. If there wasn't a plan in place, this would be the babysitting job from hell, by the way. Um, hey, go put your, ba- your baby brother out in the Nile and just watch him be eaten by crocs, right? That would be a terrible thing. But that's not it. There is more going on here. There's a strategic plan that's being taken place. Now, there, she's doing all that she can um, to come up with a plan to, 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 uh, to save her baby's life. She sends Miriam, her sister, out to watch what would happen. And then what, what happens? Verse 5. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe. Oh, what a coincidence that she happens to go down to the bathe in the very spot that they put the baby in this little basket. So there is a strategy at play here. There's, there's thought that's going into this. And her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. So again, what I want you to see here is that they're coming up with their very best plan that they can. And God calls us, by the way, to come up with plans. That we're not passive, but that we're proactive in terms of, God, what is it that you're calling me to do in these circumstances? What's the plan that I need to be making? And how can I be responsible with, the, with where I'm at and what I'm to be doing? But at the same time, we need to stop and say, but God, I'm going to trust you and your sovereignty over my plans. There's a verse that I want you to, to, to know. It's an important one. It says this in Proverbs 16:9. It says this, In their hearts, humans plan their course, but the Lord establishes their steps. This isn't important because it, in other translations, you know, man makes his plans, but God directs this, this, the, the, the path. And, that, and that's an important thing, this idea that, yes, we make our plans, but our ultimate and final faith is not in our plans, but our ultimate and final faith is in God and his sovereignty, and his ability to work his plan. We are responsible, God's sovereign. We are responsible to do what God's calling us to do in the moment, to be responsive to him, to follow him, and at the same time say, God, but we're trusting in you. Because, right, they put the baby out in the Nile, but all it would take is one little puff of wind to take that little baby out into the middle of the Nile, and all of a sudden, the baby's crock food, right? So they have to do their job, but then say, God, you've got to trust in you and trust in your plan and your purposes and what you can do. And boy, does God show up. Verse, the next, very next verse says this, that the, the she, that is the, the princess, uh, saw the, the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. So she sees the basket and there's curiosity and then they go get the basket, and then there's, there's um, crying, 
And then, of course, the crying melts the heart, and then there's compassion for this child. This is one of the Hebrew babies, and you see this progression take place. And it's, an, it's a very, very fascinating thing. Now, we know a lot about the time that this took place. We even know the person that, it is, that, that discovered um, Moses at this time. Her name was Hatshepsut. Now, you may say that's a kind of a, a funny name, but if you giggled at Hatshepsut, she would have the power to um, annihilate you, okay? She just was that kind of, had that kind of power. Hatshepsut um, was uh, <laughs> one of the only women to... Um, in, throughout Egyptian history to take upon herself the title of Pharaoh. She was a very, very powerful woman. In fact, maybe one of the most powerful women in all of human history. She took upon herself the title of Pharaoh. She uh, was married to her brother um, slash, you know, husband. So royalty sometimes, you know, messy relationships, all that. Uh, we'll just as I'll just keep it there. So her brother slash husband um, was... Amosa II. And at some point along the way, she said, nope, I'm Pharaoh. And she assumed the power. And for 25 years, she reigned. And we, there's, there's statues of her as a Pharaoh. And this is very, very, very unique. But it's interesting because most of the statues and the, the figures you find of the Egyptians, you know, they're very stylized. They have their headdress and all that kind of stuff. But over and over, when you find Hatshepsut, what you'll find is that her face um, most commonly is chipped off. And that's why I show you this other picture. Um, that, that people, many of the Egyptians resented the fact that a woman would assume the title and the power of Pharaoh that they... Um, so resented that, that later on they would chip off um, her face um, kind of as a, as a say, hey, you know, we're, uh, we were against all of that along the way. But at the time, they couldn't say anything because she had all the power. And this is where God brings Moses to the woman who has all the power, right? A very, very, very powerful woman. And amazingly, um, with a, a tender heart when she sees a baby. When she sees the baby. Now, someone could have sat down and tried to argue with this woman and said, hey, we want to argue with you about the edict of the, of the Pharaoh before, the, uh, the Pharaoh the, of, of killing these babies. And they could have debated and argued. But there's something very powerful about, hey, here's a baby. Now let's talk, right? Sometimes God wants us to change hearts and not win debates. And we change hearts by, by in, in a different way than, in, than argument and, and sometimes the ways that we t- want to go about it. So next verse says this. Then, she, then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? So she says, she's planned, she's prepared. Again, there's a plan behind all of this on the parents' part. And so um, Pharaoh's, uh, sorry, Moses' sister hops out and says, hey, guess what? I know someone who can nurse this baby for you. What do you think? And so Hatshepsut uh, in verse 8 says this, um, yes, go, she answered. So the girl went out and got the baby's mother, um, which, is, which is an incredible thing. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. Here we have the first federally funded child care program ever, right? <laughs> How great is that? Is God good or what? And, and so here's this incredible scene that takes place. There's a God that's behind all this, and there's a God at work. And here we have, uh, here we have him going and being nursed by um, his mother and, and being taken care of. The question is, you know, how long is Moses' mother able to care for him as he was growing up? 
And uh, typically, a child would be weaned at around three years old. Um, but there's some debate on, you know, how, how much longer did he spend in the home of his parents before he went back into, um, you know, the palace and to be, a, 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 you know, adopted essentially as uh, Hatshepsut's son. And there's some debate on that, but there's, there's record of um, during this time um, of uh, the 18th dynasty that there was this concept of called the, the children of the nursery. That is, foreign princes or foreign, foreign children would be brought in and taken into an educational system, and they were typically brought in um, around 10 or 11 or 12 years old. And so, best guess is that Moses got to stay home with his parents until he was 10, 11, or 12 years old before he was brought in. And so, this was an opportunity for them as parents to invest deeply in their son and to invest deeply and to, to, to uh, encourage him, to train him, and to help him understand his true identity uh, as, as, a, as a Hebrew with the one true God that they worship. And I think this is just an important thing for any parent, especially young parents of young kids, to remember that you, you may have a short time, and it, it will feel like a short time that you have to invest in your kids. And I would just say and encourage you, invest in your kids. Help them to know God has a, a, a plan, that God has a promise for them, God has a purpose for them. Remind them of that over and over and over again. And I know you may say, well, you know, we're, we're trying to raise our kids where they can make their own decisions. Guess what? Can I help you with that? They're going to. They're going to make their own decisions. It's our job as parents to say, how can we just do our very best to help them understand that that there is a God who loves them, who cares for them, and it ultimately leads to Jesus Christ and what He has done for them. So that then that point comes after you've raised them, the point where you release them, that they know because We've done our job to help them understand that there's a God that they can call out to at any time, at any point in their life. This is important, and this is what Moses' parents do. They, they raise him, and they help him understand his identity. But then they are faced with another crossroad moment, another moment of wisdom that they have to take place. In verse 10, it says this, When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. This is interesting because now they've been raising him. They're faced with another difficulty, aren't they? Another moment to say, okay, now, you know, it's time for him to go back. Do we run with him? Do we hide him again? What do we do? Well, they've raised him, and at this point, they trust God. They release him. And again, there's no perfect formula for all this stuff. This is another wisdom moment. The Bible is not a cookbook. This ingredient, this ingredient, get that. The Bible is designed to bring us into a relationship with God. So in relationship with God, we can say, God, we're seeking you. We're, we're, we're being responsive to you. We're listening to you. We're taking all of your, your word, and we're also walking with you in, in relationship. And that's, that's what they do. They release him, and he goes to be um, uh, uh, taken to, uh, to Pharaoh, as Pharaoh's um, daughter's a son. And it's interesting. It's at this point that he's now brought into um, uh, the, the greatest educational system that the world had to offer at that time. You know that? That he's brought into the Egyptian palace and he's being trained with all of the other princes. And you know what's being ta- what kind of things he's learning in that, in that system, that educational system? He's learning diplomacy. Do you think that that would be useful at some point later in his life? God's shaping him. He's being trained in mathematics. Do you think 
some point when you're leading three million people that it'd be good that if you know a few things about math? He's being trained in astronomy and especially in terms of navigation. Do you think when you're leading God's people through the desert that you need to know something about navigation? He's being trained in law. Do you think that would become useful for him later in life? You bet. See, God is still at work shaping Moses. And here, the Pharaoh is training Moses to do the work that God wants him to do later to deliver his people. Isn't that amazing? See, in a certain sense, there's the, uh, the Pharaoh who's made an edict who thinks that, hey, you know, I've got, I'm taking care of all the boys. But he's forgotten the fact that God still has all the girls. And the girls, the midwives, his mom, Miriam, even Pharaoh's, you know, wife slash sister um, is under God's sovereign control. And God is using, God using all of these things to shape Moses. But more importantly, that is seeing that God's using his parents to shape him. God used their amazing faith. And it actually speaks to that in, um, the, in, in Hebrews uh, chapter 13, 11, verse 23. It says this, By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. This is an incredible statement. In the hall of faith that's talked about in Hebrews chapter 11, Moses' parents make it. They're not named but they make it because of their great faith in a very scary time, in a, in a world that was very, very uh, awful, horrific things were going on around them. They were oppressed. There was infanticide, genocide, all of these things, but they had faith in God. They put faith in God over um, their fear of the king's edict, and it's an incredible, incredible thing. This is the, this is the, the background of, of Moses' life, and it's their faith that helped shape Moses and help Moses uh, become the man he was to be, the servant of God. And this is an important thing for us to remember, that God is in the business of shaping us. And even when we can't see it, even when we don't understand it, because his parents didn't have a full picture of how everything was going to play out, they just simply said, God, we're going to trust you one step at a time. One step at a time, we'll trust you. And this is true. When God is shaping us, by the way, we don't always get to see the full picture that he's painting have you ever watched an artist who's painting a picture or a sculpture who's like taking something and molding it into something? In the middle of the process, you're like, that painting looks messy or I don't get what's going on there. Or that sculpture, it just looks like a block and all these different things coming out of it. We don't get to see the full picture in the moment, do we? But it doesn't mean that the artist doesn't still have a design, a purpose, a plan in the process. And sometimes we just have to stop and have faith like Moses' parents to say, God, we know that you're in control. Our job is to simply trust you one step at a time, put our faith in you, and trust that you are shaping our lives and the lives of those around us. This is why Moses is such a helpful person for us to study. He was shaped into be a servant. God wants to shape us to be in a servant, but it takes faith to trust what he's doing and wisdom for us to be responsive to him. Let's take a moment and let's pray together. God, as we come before you in this time, we just want to say thank you for being a God who is in control 
and God who's working, even when it doesn't seem like you're working. And so often, God, we, we, even in our world today, we just look around and we see, you know, evil triumphing. We see certain things uh, not working the way that we, we, we see that they should be working. And it's easy for us to get into a spot of wondering, God, if you've missed something, if you're, you're not recognizing or you're not in control. But Lord, help us to be reminded, even as we look at Moses' life, that in the midst of chaos, the midst of challenge, in the midst of struggle, you're still working out your plan. That you're working a plan, not just for the world, but for each and every one of us individually. That you're shaping us. So God, I pray today that you would help the people here, all of us, to recognize your hand at work. And for those who don't yet know you, Lord, I pray that they would turn and that they would recognize, they would seek you and they would find you. A God who is powerful and has a hand that wants to work in our lives. And then for those of us, Lord, who recognize and know that you are there, to help us to be responsive to your hand so that we can continue to be shaped by you to be the people that you want us to be. God, we pray this in your name. Amen.